On JPAM's Closer Look, we will be talking to leading authors published in the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management on timely topics such as healthcare, education, immigration reform, and economics. Hi, everybody. I am very excited to talk to today's guest, Dr. Aaron Chalfin, who's a professor of criminology at the University of Pennsylvania. Thanks for making time for us and welcome to this podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Seth. I'm very excited to be here and share some of my research. Yeah, I'm really uh, excited to talk about the paper. The paper's titled, Can Precision Policing Reduce Gun Violence? Evidence from Gang Takedowns in New York City. This paper is forthcoming in JPAM, and it is co-authored with Michael LaForest of Penn State University and Jacob Kaplan of Princeton University. So the title of the paper states the research question pretty plainly. You and your colleagues are going to try to answer the question, did gang takedowns, which is a specific type of policing strategy, reduce gun violence in New York City? But before we dive into the analysis, I think it's important to situate the context. A lot of the paper refers to the general decline in crime in New York City over the past 10 years or so. And this decline is referred to the second great decline. What was the first great decline? And more generally, what have crime rates looked like in New York City over the past 50 years or so? Sure thing. So let me just start with a little bit of background about the country as a whole, and then I'll delve in and talk more about New York City. So one of the most important and fascinating features of urban life in the U.S. since the 60s is that the violent crime rate rose by about 300 percent from 1960 to 1990, and then it declined by about 70 percent thereafter. And most of that decline took place during the 1990s. So some of these changes might reflect accuracy in the official crime statistics that might have changed over time. So it's perhaps more convenient to focus on murder. That's a crime that tends to be very well measured. So in 1960, the murder rate in the United States stood at around five murders per 100,000 U.S. residents. And by 1990, the murder rate had doubled to almost nine murders per 100,000 residents. But in 2000, just 10 years later, the homicide rate was back down to 5.5 okay. and it's remained between 5 and 5.5 ever since. That's the national context. Okay. So in New York, the decline in homicides was especially steep. In 1990, the year that the city's homicide rate peaked, there were over 2,200 homicides in the city. That's a rate of 31 homicides per 100,000 residents. So those are the bad old days when violence in New York regularly headlined the national news. The subways were covered with graffiti. People left notes in their cars indicating that there were no valuables to steal. So I remember this time well. I grew up in New York City during the 1980s. So when you think about these statistics now, in 1990, the homicide rate in New York is 31 per 100,000 people. And just 10 years later, the rate is only 8.6 per 100,000 people. And then if you fast forward to 2010, the rate's even lower. It's now six and a half per 100,000. So that's really a remarkable decline in really a reasonably small amount of time. Yeah. So now what happens after 2010? So the U.S. homicide rate stops declining around 2010. But in New York, what's different is that the homicide rate continues to decline and then declines some more. So incredibly, in 2019, just before the pandemic, New York's homicide rate had declined to only 3.4 per 100,000, which is a rate that's over 90 percent lower than it was at peak. And it's really not appreciably higher than the homicide rate in a city like London or Paris. So in 2019, New York was the safest big city in the United States by far. So to sum up, in the nine years between 2010 and 2019, while national homicide rates were flat and maybe even rising, New York City cut its homicide rate in half, mm -hmm. which is a really impressive feat since the city's homicide rate in 2010 had already been one of the lowest on record. Now, interestingly, with respect to other crimes, New York City broadly follows national trends. What makes those last 10 years remarkable in New York is really something that's specific to homicides. Okay. It's really remarkable that there was that giant decline. It's also interesting and perhaps surprising to me as a, as a not a criminologist to learn that New York is, is one of the safer big cities 
in the U.S. I guess it, it's not always depicted that way in movies and so on. But as we're going to talk about in your paper, we're interested in what are the policies that can reduce crime? What do we think happened in New York during these two great declines? Do we have any sense of what caused gun violence to fall in half? Was it specific policies? Was it economic and demographic changes in the city? Was it other non-policing, non-criminology type policies that were happening? What, what do people think was going on? Yeah. So with respect to the public perception that New York is a dangerous place, even now, even after the last year and a half where violence has risen during the pandemic, even now, New York is safer than the remainder of the United States. And that's just not other U.S. cities. That includes rural areas and the suburbs, too. Mm. So New York still remains safer than the rest of the U.S. But your broader question here is like, what was driving this over the last 10 years, which is a great question. As always, there's probably a number of causes. It's probably not only one thing. Sure. Some ideas that have enjoyed popular support include the city's really rapid pace of gentrification and growth of municipal tax receipts during this time period. But as fast as gentrification is, right, it, it, it does take some time. It's not something that happens literally overnight. Mm -hmm. And we're talking here about a massive reduction in homicides and really not so much in other crimes in just a few years of time. It's a reduction that takes place in all New York City neighborhoods, those that have gentrified and those that still haven't. So those explanations, I think, don't really seem to jive so well with the data. Okay. It's also not likely to be a change in resources for the police department. The number of police is roughly unchanged during this time period, and there aren't any major adjustments to the police budget during this period either. However, around this time, there was a change in how resources were being allocated within the city's police department. And this is what we think has something important to do with the major homicide drop in New York. Okay. And part of that reallocation of resources, I guess, is, is policing strategy and tactics. And your paper is specifically about gang takedowns, although that's a, a colloquialism that I guess the newspapers and, and media tend to use. A more technical term might be precision policing. What is precision policing? And in practice, what does a gang takedown look like? Yeah, yeah. So this is exactly what I was getting at. It's, a, it's really a change in policing strategy and policing tactics. Okay. So a little bit of background here. So one of the things that the NYPD began doing more of starting around 2012 is to focus more intensively on criminal gangs. Mm -hmm. So the department implemented Operation Crew Cut, which doubled the size of the department's anti-gang unit, and they renewed the use of the department's criminal group database, which is a list of suspected gang members and gang associates citywide. So the department, along with prosecutors in the city's five district attorney's offices, so this isn't just policing, this is really uh, law enforcement writ large, stepped up their efforts to use these large-scale anti-gang raids and, and you know, what are colloquially referred to as gang takedowns. Mm -hmm. So basically, these are coordinated investigations of gangs and crews. So a crew is sort of like a really small gang that are thought to be the driver of you know, an outsized amount of community violence. So authorities build these large-scale conspiracy cases implicating not only individuals who may have perpetrated an underlying crime, but also a host of alleged criminal associates who are suspected to have been involved with related criminal activity. So this isn't a new idea by any means. Law enforcement is always focused to some degree on criminal gangs, but the scale of the approach here and the degree of integration between the district attorney's offices in New York City and the police is what's fairly unusual. The number of gang takedowns here roughly doubled starting in 2012 and has since led to several thousand arrests citywide. So while these large-scale gang raids may not sound all that precise, because we're talking about precision policing mm -hmm. from my description, it's important to consider what police were doing previously. So previously, you know, we have a policing regime that's much more like mass enforcement. So this precision policing idea is to take policing resources and direct them towards a very, very small number of criminal actors in a community rather than to focus on deterrence or the use of stops and arrests much more broadly in that community. And that mass policing you referred to, is that what we've heard about as the stop and frisk or broken windows approach to policing? Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay, so the this precision policing gang takedown, 
as sort of a, an alternative strategy. So the NYPD shifted away from the stop and frisk, broken windows type approach and moved towards the more precise gang takedown approach. Yeah. So this prior regime of stop and frisk, in some ways it might have worked, right? In some ways it might have contributed to the uh, the first crime decline. But then there's also trade-offs with it. And I know there's been some legal challenges to it. But even aside from the legal challenges, what's the trade-off or downside to the mass enforcement stop and frisk regime? And how does the precision policing improve on that? And, and I guess I'm specifically thinking about equity here. Yeah, so the original Broken Windows article from which really a generation of mass enforcement regime policing, where it came from, the original Broken Windows article by George Kelling and James Q. Wilson advocated for a particular style of policing where police officers were supposed to be proactive in, in enforcing laws and community norms. It didn't necessarily advocate for mass stop and frisk or mass arrests. That's what police departments focused on more and more during the last 30 years, but it's really not a part of the original article, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. So overall, my reading of the evidence is that large numbers of stops and arrests probably have a fairly modest public safety value. There's a nice paper by John McDonald, Jeff Fagan, and Amanda Geller that studies the NYP's execution of stop and frisk in high crime neighborhoods and found that it reduced street crime, but only by a little bit. And the financial costs are very large. The social costs are very large. So with respect to precision policing, my great hope for precision policing is that it can be a way to maintain public safety that ropes fewer people into the net of the criminal justice system. Okay. There's some great new evidence from a recent working paper by Amanda Agin, Jen Doliak, and Anna Harvey. And that paper shows that when people, particularly first-time offenders, are prosecuted for misdemeanors, they actually become more likely to be rearrested in the future. Mm-hmm. And so instead of deterring crime, which is, of course, the goal we end up risking turning a bunch of knuckleheads into hardened criminals. And so this is really something that should give us serious pause when it comes to a policing strategy that focuses on making lots and lots of arrests. So not only that, right, because you mentioned equity, but because police tend to be deployed where the serious crimes occur, and these tend to be minority communities, the people who end up bearing the brunt of low-level enforcement tend to be black and to an extent Hispanic. Okay. So by targeting the small number of people who are driving a very large share of the social costs, ideally the footprint of policing can become much lighter. And police can spend more time doing the things that police are best designed to do, which is to deter serious crime through maintaining visibility and going after the serious offenders. Okay. Now, I think there's a couple of caveats worth mentioning. So first is it's not as simple necessarily as, well, just don't make any low-level arrests. Many of the arrests that police make, these low-level arrests, are a response to community concerns. And the public safety value of at least some of these low-level arrests might end up being high. Mm -hmm. Second, these gang takedowns, even though they're more precise, can also have unintended consequences for minority communities. So Alex Vital, who's a a professor of criminology at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, he's documented some of the human costs associated with gang takedowns. So due process concerns, concerns about innocent people who are presumed guilty by association. These are serious concerns and they should be taken very seriously. Yeah. But there's definitely some reasons to believe that the costs of this gang takedown, this more precision policing approach, are going to be lower for communities than the cost of the previous regime because the takedowns just involve far fewer arrests and far fewer street stops. And so to sort of put a point in all this, over the last decade, New York City has actually seen declining crime and declining arrests. Obviously, many reasons for this, but my co-authors and I believe that the intensive focus on criminal gangs is one of the things that allowed this to happen. So, you know, any policy tool that you you throw at crime is going to have costs and benefits. Mm-hmm. Policing can and should be made better, but it's it's obviously hard to make it perfect. And so there's always going to be some costs. And just to clarify one thing, you talked about the social costs of any of these strategies, but the specifically the stop and frisk era. The other social cost, I guess, is is just community relationships with the police. Is that what we mean by social costs? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. So there's a big gap in public opinion between black and white Americans and how they feel about police and and the quality of policing Mm -hmm. that they think their community is receiving. And a lot of this is driven by perceptions that people are stopped too frequently and uh, unfairly. It's been referred to as legitimacy crisis in policing. And, And so precision policing carries with it the potential benefit of being able to reduce some of that acrimony. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And then the precision policing or gang takedowns, logistically, how does that happen? I imagine there has to be some sort of data that the police use to identify the suspected gang members or gang activity. Who analyzes that data and where does it come from? Yes, this is a really good question. The precise formula is a bit of a black box. The recipe is not something that is really available in a public document. I can speak to this at medium to high level. So first I would mention this is not only the police, it's also the prosecutors. It takes a lot of cooperation. Okay. There's a different strategy to gain intelligence and collect evidence depending on the activities of a particular gang. So sometimes the raids are are the result of not only months of investigation, but sometimes years of investigation. It's the sort of thing that requires a lot of administrative data on, you know, where are the homicides, where are the shootings, but it also requires a lot of human intelligence and street level intelligence. And so it's not just a matter of hiring a a crime analyst who knows how to write some code. It's really a a lot of people whose input is going to matter here. So once law enforcement's ready to file charges, police are going to make a series of arrests of a particular gang or crew or, or affiliates of that gang or crew. They're going to try to do that in a short period of time. Sometimes all of the arrests are made within hours in a very, very small geographic area. Other times it can take a couple of days to locate everyone. Sometimes people are farther away from the rest of the gang. They could be arrested in another jurisdiction potentially. And so once arrested, many of the arrestees end up spending time in jail while their cases move through the criminal justice system. Okay. This reminds me a little bit of something I've heard about hotspot policing. I guess hotspots referring to high crime areas. Is that related? And what do we know from other studies of hotspot policing or precision policing in New York or elsewhere? Yes, that's also a great question. I would definitely consider hotspots policing the concentration of police in, in, in high crime communities to be you know, a version of precision policing, although it's different, and I'll speak to how. So hotspots policing, just to give a little bit of a broad overview, it's, it's a simple but powerful idea that when police focus their resources more intensively on a small number of high crime places, they can drive crime down not only in those high crime places, but ultimately citywide. And so the underlying idea here is that due to features of the social and physical environment, crime is often strongly tied to place, right? And by sending more police resources to an area, you can make those areas less hospitable for crime and disorder. And it may be not so easy for offenders to just move around the corner and commit crimes in a different place. Okay. So while the findings vary a little bit, criminologists have run a number of randomized experiments, and these mostly find that hotspots policing reduces crime, at least in the short run. There's also natural experiments that study what happens to crime when police are reallocated due to a serious car crash or in response to terror threats. A lot of that research can be found in economics. This research also suggests that police presence matters for crime. Now, at the same time, these evaluations don't find a whole lot of evidence that concentrating a lot of police officers in a community makes people feel safer or improves perceptions of legitimacy. Okay. So that's something to bear in mind, because while this is a precision policing tactic in terms of concentrating more resources in a small area, it's still not very precise. That area is going to be saturated with more law enforcement and people living in that area might not feel like this is such a precise tactic. Mm-hmm. You know, more police presence typically doesn't cause crime to spill over into adjacent places. Uh, so that's good. Usually the crime reductions are real. What I think makes these gang takedowns different is that we're not only focused on place, but we're focused on a very, very small number of people, right? When you think about any high crime community in in a city near you, and you think about how much crime occurs there, serious crime, a lot of it is driven by a very small number of people, right? Most people in these communities are law-abiding people. And so this is just a way to get more precise than hotspots policing can be. Okay. 
And you mentioned that the hotspot policing, the previous studies don't find that it improves community relations, but does it make community relations worse or does it just sort of stay the status quo? The evidence that I've seen suggests that it's really more the status quo with a couple of caveats. One is that these studies tend to be a little bit underpowered to pick up subtle changes in community perceptions. How do they even measure that? Yeah, so there's survey data, you know, which is hard to gather and costly to gather. Um, sure, yeah. But, you know, the other thing that's worth mentioning here is perceptions of the police are really a stock that's built up over your lifetime, right? So there's more police presence in your community. Maybe you notice, maybe you don't. But your feelings about the police are probably built on a lifetime of, of experience. And so it may be sort of hard to move the needle on survey data from a short run intervention. Yeah. And so my reading of your paper then is that this prior literature on hotspot policing more or less is consistent with what you find in your study of New York. Is that fair to say? Yeah. So the hotspots papers and, and related natural experiments papers find that police presence matters. And we find that when police are focused on criminal gangs, there's a big payoff. So in that sense, literatures do find something similar. Why don't you give us a, a quick summary of, of what is your main finding? And then we can dive into the analysis a little bit deeper. Yeah. So our main finding is that in the aftermath of these takedowns, we're going to see a pretty sizable decline in shootings on the order of about a third, Okay. possibly also a small decline in assaults. We don't really see declines in, in property crime. Really importantly, we don't see that in the aftermath of these takedowns, there's a sustained increase in police enforcement in these areas. So it's not like you have a gang takedown and then there's an army of police officers in that community making lots of arrests for marijuana possession and lots of street stops. If anything, some of this type of enforcement actually goes down in the aftermath of a gang takedown. And so it's potentially a way for us to have our cake and eat it too, right? To have less gun violence, which you know is really the type of crime that drives a great deal of the social costs in high crime communities without this more intensive form of policing which tends to create a lot of acrimony. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right and a, and a key result to, to keep in mind when we talk about the policy implications and you know what other jurisdictions might learn from this. And those results that you just mentioned, those are based on data from New York City, but specifically public housing units in New York City. Why the focus on public housing units? And also, what do public housing units look like in New York relative to the rest of the city in terms of population size, demographics, location? Yeah, so public housing looms large in New York City. It's probably right that around half a million New Yorkers live in public housing, which is about 6% of the city's population. If New York City public housing were a city, it would actually be bigger than Atlanta. So maybe it should have its own baseball team, right? <laughs> so public housing developments, in terms of what they look like, they're pretty heterogeneous. But the larger developments that receive most of the gang takedowns that we study usually consist of a campus of anywhere from a handful to dozens of high-rise buildings. So these are buildings that are inset from the street. They're surrounded by pathways and green space and some benches. There really aren't any stores or businesses. And if you were to look from above, they don't look unlike a cluster of college dorms. Okay. So the people who live in public housing in New York are disproportionately black and Hispanic. They have lower earnings than other New Yorkers. Although around one in four households actually earns more than $50,000 a year. So that's actually not a lot of money in a high cost of living place like New York. But I point this out because it's important to note that these communities are not only home to the desperately poor. It's also a place where many working class people live and even a few members of what you might think of as the middle class. So these public housing developments, they are among the highest crime communities in the city, but New York is a very safe city, so they're not as unsafe as the poorest communities in a city like Detroit or a city like Baltimore. These are residential communities. They're frequently home to multiple generations of the same family. Some of these apartments end up being lived in by the same family over many years. Mm -hmm. Now, you also asked about why study public housing and, and not some other unit. So we have a couple of reasons. Some are substantive and one is really more a matter of analytic tractability. 
With respect to the substantive reasons, so first, public housing is where the crime hotspots tend to be. They are cohesive communities. They're not communities that just exist because someone needed a name for the community. These are places that people really think of as their neighborhood. Second, in New York, there's a particularly close nexus between street gangs and public housing, which means that in practice, a lot of these gang takedowns are tied to particular housing developments. Okay. And then finally, with respect to just analytic convenience, it's just far easier to study public housing gang takedowns rather than takedowns which might feature arrests that happen all over the city, right? If a takedown is not spatially focused, and some of them aren't, it's hard to know, well, where should we look for crime reductions, right? So the advantage of studying public housing is that, you know, I can say, well, a takedown happened in this particular housing development. What happened to crime? Got it. And that leads into my next question about how do you isolate the causal effect of a tactic change like this tactic change from mass enforcement to precision policing? How do you isolate the causal effect of that change separate from, say, you know, we talked about gentrification increases. Like, how do you separate that from changes in economic situations or who's moving into and out of these neighborhoods? Yeah, always the million dollar question or maybe the two million dollar question as there's there's been inflation. So, yeah, always a lot of stuff happening at the same time. So our task as researchers is to isolate the effect of the takedowns from these broader changes in the social environment, in the crime environment and policing that are happening at the same time in the city. So we apply an identification strategy, which is a mainstay of empirical social science research called Differences and Differences, which we make more transparent using something called an event study. So in research terminology, our primary model Mm. is going to be a regression of community crime in a given week on a treatment variable for a gang takedown, conditional on time and community fixed effects, and some other models we vary the functional form of those fixed effects. In less technical terms, we simply ask whether crime changed in a given community after a takedown, after accounting for city or for borough-wide crime trends. Okay. So these are models that are going to allow us to rule out that the changes we observe are due to broader social changes like gentrification or general changes in the crime environment. We also account for some specific stuff that was happening in New York City around the same time including the New York City Mayor's Action Plan for Community Safety, which is a plan that blanketed public housing with more social services, and also New York City's expansion of its neighborhood policing model, which did change policing in these communities. So we we account for those things as well. Yeah, so we've, we've talked about Diff and Diff a couple times on the podcast. It's definitely a powerful tool for this type of analysis. And so the The basic idea here then is that you're looking at a public housing unit before and after a takedown happened there, and you're looking for a change in crime after the takedown in that particular unit. And then, of course, you have many different units that experience takedowns at different times. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Each takedown is happening at a different time in a different housing development. So this means that you need longitudinal data that basically follows individual neighborhoods, or or I guess I should say individual housing units over time. And the time dimension here is weeks. Is that right? That's right. Why is weeks the right measure of time to look at as opposed to, say, days or maybe even a longer time span? Yeah, this is this is always one of these questions that you have to answer as a researcher. And we we try to be very scientific about what we do, but there's also an art to, to research. And this is maybe the art part, right? So here's how we thought about it. So many gang takedowns do in fact occur on a single day, but in practice, often they do roll out over several days. Like you have to find these guys and arrest them. Mm -hmm. And so the week is the smallest unit that we have that we think makes sense to use given that these takedowns can take a few days uh, sometimes. Now, if we aggregate to the month level, we see something similar. The week simply allows us to capture citywide time trends a little bit more granularly. Okay. I guess this issue of timing will also come up when we talk about the persistence or the the long run impact of these takedowns, which we'll circle back to in a bit. But now that we've talked about the data and the and the strategy here, let's dig in specifically to the main findings. What is the magnitude of the effects that we're talking about here? And what do we know about how the effect varies by, say, the the type of the takedown or the size of the takedown? as well as the different types of neighborhoods that the takedowns might occur in. 
Yeah, so we find that on average, a gang takedown reduces shootings by about a third over an 18 month period. Okay. We also find evidence that murders, which are obviously very highly correlated with shootings, go down possibly by even more, although that estimate is a little bit noisy. Assaults might decline by around six or 7%. Those estimates are a little bit on the noisy side too. The big sort of headline finding here is that shootings are down by a third. We don't observe any effects on property crimes, which is actually kind of expected because these takedowns are really hyper-focused on people who are picking up guns, not people who are stealing bicycles. Mm -hmm. The larger the takedown, the larger the effects, which makes sense. But I, I think one of the really important things here, and this is something that I highlighted a few minutes ago, just very briefly, I'll, I'll talk about this in a little bit more detail now, is, you know, so what happens to police enforcement after a takedown? Mm -hmm. Because if the takedowns are followed by more intensive enforcement, then it's, you know, two things are unsettling about that, right? One, from a research perspective, we would be worried that it wasn't the takedown that reduced crime, but then things that were happening after the takedown. And second, you know, you really, precision policing is going to be most effective and most efficient when you can nab the people who you, you want to nab in one fell swoop and you, you, you can dispense with this mass enforcement regime that tends to, to drive a lot of community resistance. Mm -hmm. So we actually find that drug possession arrests are, are down by about 10% after a takedown. We don't observe a, a significant change in street stops, but if anything, those estimates appear to be negative. In short, the takedowns don't actually usher in a long-term period of greater police enforcement. I might actually allow police to step down a little bit without a noticeable change in public safety. So for us, that feels like a, a really important finding. Yeah, for sure. And do we know anything about, there must be some variation across public housing units in baseline levels of crime or violence. Is there anything there in terms of saying that like the gang takedowns are, are most effective in the highest crime areas or something like that? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's really hard to tell one of the, so when we look at shootings, right, the nice thing about studying shootings is if you find that the intervention here is effective, it's really important because shootings are so important. The hard thing about studying shootings is that even in a higher crime place, they do tend to be pretty rare. Mm -hmm. And so we have enough power in the data to detect these average effects. It's very hard for us to characterize the nature of any treatment effect heterogeneity. So on average, these takedowns are, are effective everywhere. Yeah, on average, you know, we think there's big differences, but it's just it's just hard to say, you know, yeah, they work really, really well in housing development type A, but not so well in type B. We just we just don't have enough data to be able to make that kind of claim. Gotcha. And then we already talked about the the demographics of the public housing units themselves disproportionately house black and Hispanic New Yorkers. So I suspect then that there is a similar overrepresentation in the gang takedown arrests since they're in these public housing units. Do you have a sense of what those numbers look like? Yeah. So this is not a random slice of New Yorkers. The city is around a quarter black and one third non-black Hispanic, give or take. 91% of people arrested in public housing gang takedowns are black or Hispanic and only 6% are white. So some observers point to this as evidence that the takedowns are, are in fact discriminatory. You know, I think it's worth pointing out here that if you look at shooting victims and arrestees in New York City, over 90% are black or Hispanic. So the enforcement here broadly reflects the demographics of gun violence victimization. Okay. I think that's just an important benchmark here. Beyond that, you know, like any change that you might think about in law enforcement or criminal justice policy, the potential benefits as well as the potential costs are always gonna be highest for minority communities. The stakes are just higher all around, regardless of where you are in the political spectrum. These communities just have the most to gain, they have the most to lose. Yeah, and so the flip side of the arrestees being disproportionately black and Hispanic is that, I guess the, it's also black and Hispanic communities that disproportionately benefit in terms of the, of the lower gun violence rates that you find as a result of the takedowns. Correct. Yeah, correct. Absolutely. Okay. I guess two other important things that I was thinking about as I was reading your study is, is it possible that the gangs 
sort of are, are aware of what's happening. And so they move their criminal activities to other neighborhoods or even just that they're, that they're more careful in some sense to sort of avoid these takedowns, which would ultimately lead to displacement. I know, I think you say that you don't find much evidence of displacement, but can you talk a little bit about how you find that out and also why is it not happening more? Yeah, I think the gangs are aware, you know, that law enforcement is active in this kind of way, right? And absolutely, one thing you do have to think about is, might this just push crime to another community or might it make offenders more careful? I'll, I'll speak to each of these in turn. So when we think about displacement to other areas, you're implicitly sort of thinking about a particular type of offender who's, who's very mobile. And those offenders certainly exist. But when you think about these crews that are heavily identified with these public housing communities, these tend to be people who operate where they're comfortable, where they know the social and physical landscape very well. Okay. And so it's actually not so easy to just move a few blocks away, right? Or move to another housing development where, you know, you don't know who the players are. That actually could be could be pretty dangerous to do. Right. We do look to see if there is evidence of displacement, and, and I'll just briefly describe how we do that. So what we do is we say, well, after a gang takedown, what happens to crime and violence in nearby areas? So areas that are a few blocks away from the housing development that receive the takedown. We also look at crime in nearby public housing developments because maybe the crime is displaced to another public housing community, not just another community. So if displacement were happening, we'd expect that a gang takedown would reduce gun violence in the area that got the takedown, but increase gun violence in these nearby places. We don't see any clear evidence of this. If anything, there might actually be a little bit of evidence uh, of the opposite thing happening. So less crime nearby locations. Okay. And this actually makes sense because the takedowns are, are hyper-focused on these housing com- communities, but some of the people who are arrested do live outside the community itself, live nearby. And so it's not crazy to think that there might be some, some positive spillovers there. Now, with respect to do gangs become more careful, that's not a question I can answer, but I think I would say if that's part of the treatment effect, great, right? You know, one of the things that can come with this, right, is you can either reduce crime by incapacitating people and, you know, they're not committing crimes, they're not shooting anyone because they're in jail or they're in prison. But if it deters the most socially costly types of behavior, that's also a win, right? If you can take a crew that used to be dealing drugs and engaging in gun violence, and now they're only dealing drugs very carefully, that feels like a win as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. So that discussion was about, I guess, physical or geographic displacement. The other type of displacement would be temporal or over time. Maybe the gangs lay low for a while and then resume their activities. And so the the other big thing I was wondering is, is what do we know about how long these reductions in gun violence last? How long run are these benefits? Yeah, so best we can tell, the effects of the takedowns last for around 18 months. After that, rates of violence appear to roughly return to baseline. Okay. Now, this could be true for several reasons, right? It could be that the gangs are laying low. It could be that the deterrence value of the takedown declines as the memory of it fades. Could be because the people who are arrested over time tend to get released. They're back on the street. Or maybe a new crew steps up to fill the void left by the takedown of an old crew. And there are probably some other stories you could tell as well. Yeah. So yeah, so the benefits don't last forever. And to enjoy continuous public safety benefits, uh, law enforcement really does need to keep up the focus on these gangs and crews. A natural question is, is this sustainable? It seems to have been sustainable for the better part of a decade, but it also certainly bears mentioning that a strategy like this probably can be made most sustainable when it's paired with social and community services that prevent kids from becoming the next generation of gang members. And this is something that people in the city, you know, have mentioned to me, people in law enforcement in the city have mentioned to me in conversations that I've had that, you know, they believe these gang takedowns work, right? Even without my paper and my research, right? This is something that a lot of people believed was successful, but they did worry. Well, you know, we arrested the 19 and 20 year olds, but what about the 13 and 14 year olds? What you know, what are they going to do in, in four or five years? And, you know, is there some way to intervene with those kids before the takedowns become necessary? 
Yeah, I, I think that's an important point that we can, can come back to at the at the policy implications. I mean, 18 months, it's not forever, but but it is a long time. And and so I again, I think these results are really important and, re- and really promising in that it's not deplacing crime to other neighborhoods and it's the decline is lasting for a while. Although I think you hit a really important point, which is this does nothing to address the problems that cause the gangs to arise in the first place, whether it's lack of employment or public school opportunities and so on. Right. Yeah. No, it's it. Look, it's an effective strategy that allows you to do something now. Right. It's it's really hard to address root causes. Right. So it's great when we can do something that works right now, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't also be thinking about root causes. Yeah, absolutely right. All right. This was a really fascinating discussion and a really fascinating paper. Again, I mean, these effects seem very real and non-trivial and your careful data analysis has has given, I think, pretty credible evidence to the intuition that it seems like a lot of the police departments and community activists already had that these things were working. It seems like this definitely contributed to the second crime decline in New York. I forget, were you able to say like, do you have a rough guess of what share of the great decline was due specifically to these precision policing tactics? Yeah, so it's a little bit hard to to make these estimates, but we we did a back of the envelope calculation and we think maybe around 10% of the citywide decline and even more in public housing. Yeah. And one thing that that bears mentioning here is that we're able to study these gang takedowns, but the broader effect of the shift towards more gang enforcement is going to be bigger than the effect of these particular takedowns. And so I would call this a lower bound on the effectiveness of the switch in strategy towards greater gang enforcement writ large in the city. Yeah. Okay. And so what should policymakers take away from your study and how might that vary across different levels of government? I mean, I assume mayors of big cities might be interested. Police departments might be interested higher levels of government, maybe. What are the main takeaways that these different stakeholders should learn from your paper? Yeah, so this is this is a really good question. It's something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about of late. So a caveat here is that I'm a crime guy. I'm a crime researcher. I wouldn't say that I have any special expertise in the details of public administration. So I want to make sure I stay in my lane uh, when I answer this question, but maybe I'll, I'll take a few liberties here. So certainly I think police executives in large cities can look to these findings as evidence that this sort of strategy can in fact pay large dividends. Whether it will in a given city, who knows? You know, the devil's always in the details. But I think this is important proof of concept. For higher levels of government, something that I've been thinking a lot about. So when you think about the 1994 crime bill, which was a a major piece of you know, anti-crime public safety legislation passed just after the peak of crime in the United States. One of the big components of that legislation is block grants to cities to hire more cops. So there's a lot of police hiring in the 1990s and, and early 2000s, and that is largely driven by these federal block grants. So, you know, could there be a wave of block grants that support local law enforcement, police, as well as prosecutors, to do more of this anti-gang enforcement with the proviso that the money can't just be hired to do more like stop and frisk, right? Mm -hmm. More money for investigators, more money for investigations and and training on how to build these sorts of cases. There's those who believe that investigators in general are very under-resourced. There's actually a really nice paper by Anthony Braga, who's a criminologist, and Phil Cook, who's an economist and and co-authors, that studies the rate of clearing murders versus the rate of clearing shootings by police departments, meaning, uh, meaning the rate at which arrests are made. And if there's a murder, meaning the, the victim doesn't survive, the rate of arrest is way higher than when the victim survives. And you would think if anything, you have a live victim, you might you know be able to identify the perpetrator. You would think if anything, these non-fatal shootings should have a higher clearance rate. It's the opposite. And so a lot of people think that just reflects resources and effort. You put more resources into clearing a murder. You put more effort into clearing a murder. Okay. But when someone's shot, right, that also can lead to retaliatory violence. So I think there's a lot of opportunities to, you know, focus on more funding for this really, really vital part of law enforcement that I think has a big, big payoff. Yeah. 
That makes sense. And I don't know, you might be familiar with a paper about block grants by Robin Cox and Jamie and Cunningham, also in JPAM. Mm -hmm. We had them on the podcast a couple of weeks ago talking about their study. And, and yeah, resources matter, but also how they are spent matters for sure. And then what about on the ground? What about for individual police departments, community groups? Is there anything that they should keep in mind uh, or, or learn from your study? Yeah, so I think what we've identified in the paper, as I mentioned, is really just it's proof of concept, right? And mm -hmm. what it's going to take for a city to ramp up and build a successful precision policing strategy remains this really important question. It takes a lot of cooperation between police and prosecutors, meaning there's got to be a good relationship in place. It's critically important for the police to target the right people without sweeping innocent people into the net of the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. So there's you know, this big divide, right, in how black and white Americans perceive police officers and policing in America. And, you know, when you look at the survey data, right, despite misgivings, the survey data strongly suggests that black Americans don't want less policing. They want better policing. They want the kind of policing that white Americans are more likely to say that they get. And so gang raids can either be just one more tool for police to create acrimony in black communities, or they can be a great solution for this oft-described problem of both under and over-policing in Black communities in the United States. And so community support is going to be hugely important, right? Mm -hmm. You really need for this to be something that the community is going to get behind and say, like, this is what we've always wanted police to do, not just, like, stop random people who happen to be walking around a public housing community and search them for, for firearms, right? I hope that we'll get there, but we've got to be patient because, again, Police community resentment towards the police is a stock. It represents a lifetime of lived experience. And so I think we just, you know, need to be a little patient. Yeah, I think that's right. And one final thought to push you on a little bit is, you know, and we said this is not a panacea and it's, a, you know, something of a, of a Band-Aid fix that can be used immediately right now, but it doesn't address the, the root causes of gang formation and, and criminal activity. So both at a, at a high level, are there any other social programs or policies that you think work well alongside the precision policing tactics that should be considered? And even on the policing side, are there other policing strategies that you think complement the precision policing gang takedown approach? Yeah, so definitely fair to say this is not a panacea. I've studied criminal justice policy and, and crime for around 15 years now. I'm not a big believer in magic jelly beans that cure all of society's ills at low cost, right? This isn't like that, you know, one diet pill where you lose 52 pounds in 28 days, right? Precision policing, right, is really a policy that I would call more an aspiration or an organizing principle for how policing effort can be allocated, can be best allocated. If you want to address gun violence, you can either do mass stop, question, frisk and try to find weapons in order to deter gun carrying, or you can just like intensively target the people who are really the drivers of this retaliatory cycle of, of violence. So, you know, I, again, it's really an organizing principle. Now, what does this go hand in hand with? I can think of a, a couple of things. So really you, you want it to go hand in hand with more community oriented approaches. So there's some promising, although mixed evidence for group based deterrent strategies like Operation Ceasefire. This is a, an approach where authorities engage with high-risk offenders, sometimes people who are members of criminal gangs or crews, and they'll offer sort of a carrot, which is an offer of social services and assistance, as well as the stick, the threat of sanctions, right? We're watching you. We are going to dismantle your gang if we think your gang is the most violent. There is some evidence that that sort of approach can be effective. There's also uh, street worker programs in which Civilians are hired to be violence interrupters and work directly with gang members to try to end the cycle of retaliation. So these are people who ideally are very keyed into what's happening on the street. I think the evidence for this is is still not super compelling. It's it's a little bit thin. Okay. But at the same time, it's probably right that there's wide variation in how good these programs are. And so given that the benefits can be very high. If you can get something like this to work, I, I think it's still absolutely worth trying. You know, ultimately, I think what you have to say is that, you know, the police are 
always going to be a central tool for countering serious crime and violence, right? But it's not clear how sustainable that's going to be if police are the only tool. And so yeah. any police executive will tell you, or, or as you know, all the conversations I've ever had with police executive, they'll say like, look, we want more social services alongside what we do for these communities. It can only work if you're doing both. Well said. Is there anything that we missed or, or one final point you want to make sure that our listeners take away with them? Yeah, so you definitely asked all the right questions. I think we covered everything that I would want to cover, but I'll leave you with one sort of brief, too long, didn't read takeaway point. So I think what I would say is some of the things that police do matter a lot. Even if, you know, some listeners are disinclined to believe that more and more and more investment in policing is a good idea. Some of the things police do can have huge effects for communities where people are poor and often stuck in place. And I think that's a something very important to keep in mind. So by empowering law enforcement to be more precise and, and more efficient, we have this, this opportunity to have our cake and eat it too, right? We might be able to reduce crime and at the same time reduce the use of the criminal justice system for the vast majority of people. This is an approach that potentially allows law enforcement to act with a scalpel rather than with a bulldozer. Mm -hmm. I think New York's experience with this is a roadmap for how the approach can work. There's lots of roadblocks to taking this strategy to scale in other places and other times. When this was happening in 2010, crime in New York was in steady state or maybe even was declining. That's no longer true since 2020. And so I think one of the things that will be important to learn about is, well, when violence is increasing, is rising, is this strategy going to still work as well? Is this something that's going to be continue to be a solution even post-pandemic? Yeah, definitely something to think about in terms of, of scaling up and replicating elsewhere is, you know, it'll be a different world, you know, after 2020, 2021, as things get back to normal and different cities and police departments might try to adopt some of these policies are going to be adopting it in a very different landscape. So that's a, an important point to keep in mind. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us again. This has been a really uh, fascinating conversation and a great paper. I hope everybody gets a chance to read the paper when it comes out in JPAM. It's already up online. Our guest today has been Dr. Aaron Chalfin of University of Pennsylvania. Thanks again for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks, Seth. Yep, thanks. And thanks to our listeners. Until next time, this is your host, Seth Gershenson of American University, signing off. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of JPAM, the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management, in conjunction with American University's School of Public Affairs. Please follow us on the APAM website and search for the JPAM podcast. <laughs>